This is a news laundry podcast and you're listening to NL Hafta. अंग्रेज अपना लगान और न्यूज लॉन्ड्री अपना हफ्ता कभी नहीं छोड़ते वेलकम टू अनदर एपिसोड ऑफ न्यूज लॉन्ड्री हफ्ता फ्रॉम अ वेरी पोल्यूटेड डेली द ए क्यू आई ऑफ विच गेट्स वर्स एवरी पासिंग डे वी शेल हेयर मोर अबाउट इट इन द हेडलाइंस फ्रॉम जय श्री बट बिफोर वी गेट इन द हेडलाइंस एंड द डिस्कशन लेट मी इंट्रोड्यूस द पैनल टूडे आई एम द ओनली वन इन द स्टूडियो विद आदित्य तहरीम एंड अनिल Raman sir joins us from the hills in his cottage his his summer cottage like the angrez log used to go hi raman sir how's your cottage hi hi it's very cold out here but better aqi than delhi i'm sure <laughs> it is joining us from chennai is jayshree hi jayshree hi um also joining us on the phone line thank you so much we have two experts who have actually written extensively on climate and because that is a significant portion of what we will be discussing in the half hour today uh, joining us on the phone line are harjeet singh hi harjeet hi hi everyone and you are joining us from which city are you in i'm in glasgow scotland you're in glasgow you're right there right now and also joining us on the phone line is lu del bello hi lu where are you are you in glasgow as well hi i wish no i'm in delhi enjoying the deteriorating air yes we are so let me <laughs> just introduce our two panelists um Harjeet is a senior advisor for Climate Action Network International, a global expert on issues of climate impacts, migration, adaptation, and he's been supporting countries across the world on tackling climate change. He's written for Thomson, Reuters, Down to Earth, Climate Change News, News 18, New Internationalist, Gaon Connection, and India Climate Dialogue, among other publications. Harjeet, we look forward to your enlightening comments so our listeners can know a little more about this issue before they leave. and also joining us is lu del bello lu is a climate and energy journalist she's based in delhi she writes the newsletter lights on so you can check out that newsletter it focuses on south asia's green economy and climate science she was the environment correspondent for bloomberg and a freelance writer she's written for bbc on dark nature news new scientists among others she is the 2021 winner of the UK freelance writing award in the science and health category welcome lu and harjeet thank you harjeet you're in glasgow i the little bit that i did read about this uh, a few things that i figured were that since the industrial revolution to now uh, we have impacted the climate enough for it to go up by just 1 degree so far and if it goes up by 2 that means we're looking at twice the amount of destruction is that right and how seriously should we take the commitments that one is hearing at the cop 26 uh, picking up from what you said and bear uh, lu ended on impacts how it has become so relevant not only for developing countries but for the entire world especially when we have seen impacts in the global north uh, europe was flooded recently we have seen wildfires in australia us canada uh, and even turkey and when we talk about impacts you know between what we are facing now or two degree i must tell you there was an ipcc report intergovernmental panel on climate change which came up with a special report in 2018 looking at uh, 1.5 degree and 2 degree of warming uh, because as you know paris agreement has both targets uh, the 2 degree is a more political goal uh, not, doesn't really connect with science as much uh, but 1.5 was more aspirational but as years passed Uh, and with new ipcc reports coming up uh, it is clear that between 1.5 to 2 degrees the impacts are going to be more than twice so more than two times the impact that we are going to see whether you talk about the species loss or in terms of food production 
uh, and uh, sea level rise and so on. So we are actually, uh, what we are facing at 1.1 degree of uh, temperature rise scenario, I, I think at two degrees, it's going to be several times and not two times. And this is how the climate system works. Since it is clearly going to be very dire, can you just explain to us why is it that even from, I heard the uh, the speech of the Prime Minister of Barbados, I think uh, she is from, I'll just confirm, uh, her name is Mia Motley. From what I understood from her speech, what she's saying is that it's even a challenge getting $100 billion together to fight, I mean, to, to create this fund to fight climate change. I'm, I'm rather shocked because, I mean, I think a few billionaires around the world could pitch in and create $100 billion. I mean, is it that low on all the countries' priority list that even the countries around the world can't put together a $100 billion fund? Oh, absolutely. Um, so what we need, and in fact, this promise goes back to 2009, when rich countries committed to provide $100 billion a year. And that figure also came out of thin air without any analysis. There were some numbers floating that time, about 60 billion, 80 billion. Uh, but they, these were not based on the actual analysis. The numbers are now in trillions. Uh, India's own climate action plan, or what we call NDC, Nationally Determined Contribution, uh, calculated that it would require $2.5 trillion by 2030 to implement its climate action. And a recent report from Africa, where they have resolved uh, and calculated that they will be needing $1.3 trillion per year by 2030. So we have to talk about trillions, but $100 billion happens to be a commitment, as I said, going back to 2009, which is supposed to be a seed money to attract those trillions. And you're right, the reality is that it's, it's not difficult to put that fund together um, and, and keep funding it every year. And we could clearly see that in response to COVID pandemic, trillions could be organized in no time. So what's the problem? Rich countries do not want to give away that money, which is not aid, which is not a favor. Uh, it is an obligation because they are the ones who caused the crisis. So many uh, agreements have happened in the past also say Montreal Protocol 1987, then you had Kyoto, this was in 2005, and then this Paris Agreement. I mean, aren't we uh, lagging behind, uh, you know, at the implementation level? I mean, how do you see, I mean, how uh, are we are we doing anything on that front practically, A? And B, uh, second question is, you know, I mean, every second year or third year, we just uh, hear, you know, new... Uh, things, the new dialogue on environment. So is there any continuity in uh, between you, say, in uh, Kyoto, Paris, and now Glasgow? So these are very good questions. I think um, it's interesting that you mentioned um, the Montreal Protocol, because this is hailed as one of the, I would say, the big success uh, for international diplomacy when it comes to the environment, because, you know, countries have effectively phased out the gases that we're creating uh, this problem and the and the ozone layer is actually restoring. So um, I think there are a lot of lessons to learn from the Montreal Protocol and how it was implemented. Um, and one way in which it was implemented was to have a very granular presence on the ground, um, which is something that I think would be very, very important going forward. Like the Paris Agreement was um, a great start, obviously a very inspirational uh, achievement, but it's really only the start. Like there isn't even a set of rules just yet um, for countries to follow um, and to be able to exchange carbon credits or carbon um, 
I can't remember how they're called, but there's a technical term that is not quite carbon credits. Um, but it's basically you trade your emission savings in a way of creating like a carbon market. And, you know, all these rules, they seem, they sound very bureaucratic, but actually they will help you implement the Paris Agreement. And I think, you know, it's true that it's very difficult to get there. And um, a lot of these discussions sound very hollow. It's a bunch of people coming together every year, closing themselves in a room for hours and days on end, and then coming out and everything seems, you know, to be the same. But I do feel um, once these rules are agreed, and some of them have been already agreed, then progress is possible. Like in ju just in um, 2015, when Paris Agreement was um, signed, um, I would say myself personally, but many other people were not hopeful at all that the 1.5 target would ever be on the table. And, you know, we were just not optimistic about the two degrees. Um, whereas now at least there's something that, that dominates the conversation. So I think progress is slow, but I think you start by changing the conversation about around something and then and then politics follows and then businesses also follow. Um, so we see like for me, one example that, you know, I find very inspiring and makes me optimistic, I have to say, is the development of clean energy in India. I mean, I can say of uh, something that, you know, I see around me every day. So I'm sure there will be others in other parts of the world, but you see how well it's going. And despite India being a very, very heavily reliant on coal, there is this intent and this practical action to really deliver an energy transition. And it's happening much faster than I think would have happened without that political clout around the Paris Agreement and around, you know, climate goals. In, in the context of um, what you were saying, Lou and Harjit, about developing countries, I wanted to ask, like, I know the U.S. and the West have started to reduce their carbon emissions, but um, I think one way, one way they achieve that is because a lot of their production polluting activities are done in countries like China where like goods consumed in the West are produced there. So is this factored in when you're calculating a country's emissions? Do you think that these emissions should be put solely in China's account or should they be added to Western countries' accounts? I mean, not to say that China's own domestic production produce, it does produce a lot of emissions, but is this also something that should be considered? I mean, this is something that is partially starting to be considered and it's one of the sticking points for the um, uh, trading of carbon credits, for example, like when you reduce your emissions at home and you trade your uh, carbon credits, what's going to happen? Um, is there going to be a double counting? So both the countries will claim these climate gains. Um, in the case of China, it's very interesting because we know that China, for example, has, has been hard at work to you know, decarbonize its uh, domestic system. But then what happens with, for example, the Belt and Road, which is this gigantic trade operation, much of which is based on exporting fossil fuel capacity and carbon intensive infrastructure activities. We just think about what's happened in Africa or Pakistan. So I think this is a space that it's still very unregulated and there is some awareness that things have to change. What we need to look at, the numbers that China has put on the table, how real they are. And we need to recognize when China says something, it does. And the current energy crisis that China is facing, one of the main reasons is uh, their strong climate targets. Yes, they've shut um, down and mines and they've made it much more difficult to open new coal mines as well. Exactly. So, so, so which means if China is saying it's going to peak before 2030 and it's going to be net zero before 2060, it's not a small thing to be done. But, you know, the reality is in the international diplomacy, uh, China and India have become punching bags. 
so that you know attention is diverted away from rich countries you know the question that we need to be asking in these international spaces and we do is do you think any display of religiosity is pandering to hindutva or how how do you read this will it get votes at all do 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 people in goa want to visit any church outside goa i, I would have guessed not because <laughs> all the most magnificent churches are in goa only but uh, you have a take on this and then jessi if, if she can give us her hot take in politics uh, the secularism uh, is known uh, you know as either the state makes equidistance equidistance from the religions all kind of religions or equal respect for all religion okay so r kejriwal <laughs> he opted for equal respect for all religion so he is offering pilgrimage to every religion uh, i mean pe- pe- uh, the older people of every religion so uh, having said that uh, i think here uh, the uh, kejriwal is more driven uh, you know by the politics of it and the politics of it is the bjp rallies around uh, the fact that they are the most deshbhakt they are the most nationalist they are the most hindu than anybody else and this is this has been a success so far uh, for the bjp i mean they it has really uh, you know it has definitely divided the society it has harmed us a lot it has really harmed us so much that i don't see that uh, we will bounce back you know in another 5 years uh, or so but yes i am optimistic uh, if there is a decade there will be development too so i i feel uh, this is the politics of the bjp and kejriwal he he is just uh, riding on it he wants to ensure that the people should not view aam aadmi party as anti hindu party and the people should not view them as you know less deshbhakt than the bjp jashree your take on this if you had a choice which one would you take <laughs> which package would you take Sorry, I got a Velankani because it's closest. I'm not a traveler. <laughs> no, so I feel okay at a very base level. This is buffoonery. Like I think he, I think Ajayal does want to tap into the Hindutva electorate, but at the same time, he wants to appear as being secular. So he chooses the most idiotic plan, which is to not only offer pilgrimages to Ayodhya for Goa's elders, but also to three other random places where no, which is something that nobody else is promising. and obviously now he's the butt of all jokes because people are saying oh what about the buddhists what about the parsis so it's like a farce but also what isn't funny is that i think he's showing that religion is not really an election tactic anymore it is a bit of the aap's policy it's basically a center right party that's realizing it needs this section of the vote bank and it's also in some ways trying to be an alternative to the bjp but it can't really reconcile the two and as a party it has looked the other way when we talk about violence against minorities in delhi so i don't know realistically what inroads they're planning to make in goa but this is a signpost for its voters elsewhere all of you listening in the chota hafta do subscribe so you can listen to the entire hafta we will see you again next week with the hafta till then subscribe pay to keep news free because when the public pays the public is served and advertisers pay advertisers served thank you Goodbye. All the news laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please.